Yes. Did you see how the, what does the ESV say? Okay, manifested in the flesh, but there's a word, it's not justified, it is vindicated. Okay? Um, Now, first off, it's talking by the spirit rather than by the blood, right? But the Greek word is justified, Okay, so why does your ESV not translate it justified? The translators do not want to confuse you. And there is uh, justification. That word... uh, has two senses of way it can be used. One is what we call the Pauline sense, and one is I'll just call final. And this is actually, the final justification is the typical. So if I told you uh, three weeks ago that the Denver Nuggets would win the National Basketball Association Championship... Uh, you would say, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Uh, But if I said it three weeks ago, my statement that the Denver Nuggets will win the championship, I realize most of you guys are probably not basketball fans, but um, did the Denver Nuggets win the national championship? Yes, they did. My statement that the Denver Nuggets will win the national championship was justified by the actual events that occurred. That's the typical way justification is used. Okay, so it's okay to use that. But we, because we're uh, biblical people, uh, and because Paul is our friend, we're used to using the, the word justification in the Pauline sense. In the Pauline sense, he, uh, God is declaring you to be righteous even before you are righteous. It's like a legal statement. And the reason why um, God can do this is because when he declares someone righteous, they will be righteous, period. Okay? Both legally and, in the end, uh, experientially. <laughs> so, so that's what we call glorification. When you are glorified, you are um, uh the, the declaration that God said that you are just is proven true at the end. Are you following that? Okay, so, uh, but we th- we're so used to using justification in the Pauline sense of God just declares it, therefore it is, that we sometimes miss this final justification. So on the day of judgment, when you stand before God, there will be a complete, the, the judgment will be given, all of your sins will be listed, all of Christ's righteousness will be listed, and, and you will, um, we will see clearly that, that Christ's death on the cross fully paid for all your sin, and then we will see you um, perfectly made righteous by the Spirit of God, so that your, your condition at that moment will be perfectly in line with God's legal declaration way back when you were first believed. 
And we, what we're saying is that God's initial statement is true. It's not false. Just like if I were to say the Denver Nuggets are, are going to win the national championship, when they actually win the championship, it's proven true. Okay. So um, what we often then, the meaning of justification in that final sense comes very close to what we mean by vindication. I am vindicated in my statement that the Denver Nuggets will win. So at the end, when we're at the final judgment day, God will be vindicated that he has not been unjust to declare you just. Does that make sense? There's this final vindication that's taking place. Anyway, so all this is there. So, But your translators understand how hard it is for people to think about justification in both ways. And so they just translate it vindication. Except in the New King James, they translated it justification because they were trying to stay close to the word, right? So I'm telling you all this not because I need you to understand everything about justification. I'm telling you this because translators always have a challenge. How much do they make it uh, readily understandable? And how much do they hold close to the word itself? Are you following this? How, how this can be difficult sometimes? Well, in the, in the first Timothy passage, I didn't really, uh, I, I'm just, no, I didn't make a statement on how first Timothy is, um, is using the word justification. I'm just trying to say that there are two different ways of justification. Um, it could be, could be first Timothy's talking about that, um, so that the ESV translators are taking it as a final vindication. Does that make sense? They're, they're, that's how they're taking it. But it, what I'm telling you is you have to look at the context to try to figure out what he's talking about. And it takes a lot of work to do that. And it's very challenging to do that. And, it takes, and so if you're just reading the text, you could, just as we could be con- confused by these two passages that both use justified, you could be reading 1 Timothy 3 and wonder, I thought justification was a legal declaration of God based on the blood of Christ. has nothing to do with who you are. Even if, if it is Pauline or final, whatever, it's, you're justified not by the blood of Christ here. What are you justified in? The Spirit. So it's talking about something that's happening in you, right? You're in the Spirit. So it's, even in that sense, it kind of confuses our legal understanding of justification having nothing to do with what's going on in your heart. It's just a legal declaration of God to be justified in the Spirit just is a strange thing. And so your translators are saying that's just too hard for most people to figure out on, on a quick reading, and then they just get confused. And so they, they use the word vindication, which... I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just telling you, this is what translators do. This is why it's helpful to you to have multiple translations. And if you read the justified in the spirit and then you read vindicated in the spirit, nine times out of ten, the translators are never completely wrong. They just made a choice on translating it. 
And by having both of them, you can start thinking, oh, why did the translators go this way? And why did they go this way? And it will deepen your understanding of the text just by looking at those differences. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Um, Turn to Romans. Well, uh, yeah, turn to Romans. That's a bit better. Turn to Romans 6-7. Romans 6, 7. Robin, read that for me. Short one. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, so tell me, uh, just based on what Robin read, the ESV translation, what is your understanding of the meaning of those words? The one, and I know I'm not giving you the whole context. Uh, you, you may know the context of Romans 6. But if you don't, that's fine. Just when you read, for one who has died has been set free from sin, uh, what, what's being, just, what's the point? You're casting, you're casting off your body and flesh, which is sin. So, okay, so, uh, casting, casting off sin. Okay, so uh, the statement one who has died. Um, and then the, the result of dying set free from sin. Okay, so it could be could be one could be penalty. Two can be the power of sin. Right? One who has died. So what kind of death are we talking about? Just off the top of your head. Physical death. But I think what Peter said, there's like a spiritual death almost that you're... Our Savior washes us clean. Yeah. He takes our spirit and makes us like snow, white and pure. Yes. Uh, Christian, I want to set that up in the foyer, not up here. Okay. Yeah. So, but yes, you see my computer out there? It, it'll just be pre- up against there, so I don't want you to work too hard on that. <laughs> What's that? Works either way, okay. Okay, so let me just give you, I'm assuming that most of us have ESV, so I'm not going to ask you to read, but the Holman Standard Bible, which is CSB, Christian Standard Bible, since a person who has died is free from sin's claims. So they add the word claims. Does that help or hurt? (laughs) What do you think? It says, uh, since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. It does, the, the idea sounds more like the, the penalty, doesn't it? 
okay? Um, the King James Version says, he that is dead is freed from sin. So, like, in, in the NAS, they have kind of add this, since a person who has died is set free from, the, the King James just said that he that is dead is freed from sin. So really concise. Um, the NIV, they say, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Anyone who has died, so instead of one, it's anyone how does that change the, the, the sense here? What are you going to ask yourself if you see anyone who has died? What are you going to tell yourself? It's not everyone. So therefore, what's the question? Have I died? You see how that just thrusts? So like in the, in the ESV, since the one who has died is free from sin, you might still ask the question, have I died? But it's more of this just theological, philosophical statement of, uh, if a person's dead, then he's free from sin. Um, and it's interesting, Jim just took it physical death, which I think is, you're going uh, to be on the right track there, Jim. So uh, the n- new living translation, new living. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say one's terrible, one's good. Uh, I just want you, it says, for when we died, With Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Now look how that, for when we died, and then it adds, with Christ. How does that change things? Not necessarily physical death. Yes, it's definitely talking about power. Yes. You see, are you kind of catching that? So here we are. If you just read your translation, you'll probably go, oh, I know exactly what this means. And if you study the whole context of the passage, it will help you. Um, so why do they throw in with Christ? Yes, it does. Very good. That's excellent, Susan. Establishes this subset. Look at the beginning of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So his point in Romans 5 is that no matter how much you sin, the grace of God is powerful enough to cleanse all of your sins. That's the point of Romans 5. And his question then is, oh, if you, can, if you increase the amount of sins that you commit, it, it only increases the amount of grace that you've been given, so why not keep on sinning? That's his question. Right, And then he says, by no means. And he could say at that point, you scoundrel, why are you even thinking that way, you foul person? But that's not the way he does it. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so he's, he, he's that's, this statement in, in chapter 6-1 is related to what's in 6-7. But listen to what he says. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus 
were baptized into his death. Okay? So let's think about this. Here's Jesus. He lived his life. He fought against sin. He goes to the cross, and he dies. After being in the grave, he rises up from the grave. While he's in the tomb and after, does sin have any hold on Jesus? None whatsoever. So, in this passage, Jesus Jesus dies and rises from the dead. Sin no longer has hold on him. You, when you were baptized, and there's another big question of, does this mean spiritual baptism of the Spirit? Which kind of would go with that 1 Timothy 3.16, you're justified in the Spirit. <laughs> but uh, does he, is he talking about that conversion moment that you personally, as this occurred, or is he talking about some kind of um, what I would call union with Christ, This is, this is so helpful to your Christianity. Union with Christ. So if this is, if I have died, back to Jim's thing. Jim, will you struggle with sin after you're lying in the grave? None, right? So if Paul is saying, if you have truly died, you'll be free from sin, and he's mentioning like your own personal death, then this makes no sense. Because if he's talking about your own personal death, you shouldn't even have a struggle. You're not even a Christian if you've got to struggle with sin because you've already died. But if he's talking about you are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection, so that when you have been baptized, the the external sign of baptism is the sign of your death and resurrection, if that's true, then this union with Christ prevents you from just going on sinning. Because you've been united with him in his death. And therefore, because of this union with Christ, we can speak of you as if you've already died, even though you haven't, you're still going on living. It's amazing when you think of this, that you have, when he says, since those who have died, since a person who has died is freed from sin, this is what he's talking about. He's referring to union with Christ. He's not referring to your own personal death and resurrection, that's the fruit of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection, okay? Now, uh, um, so I really, in this particular sense, in this way, like the New Living Translation because it actually helps you to see that it's not just about your death. Well, I guess I'm not a Christian because I haven't died yet. It's about saying, remembering, it's my union with Christ that is the driving force that will continually push me towards my own death and my own resurrection. And that's, that's Christianity. And Paul's saying, if you're united with Christ, you will be in this battle. Later on in the book of uh, chapter 6, he actually talks about being a slave to righteousness. I don't know if you guys remember when I preached through this, I, I, I used the illustration being tethered to a rocket. Christ is the rocket. He is lifting you up to be free from your sin. Are you still struggling with sin? Of course you are. The people in Romans were too because he wouldn't have had to say fight against sin if they had already died completely. Right? So he so anyway, 
So in this particular passage, in this particular verse, the New Living Translation helped me intensely. Do I use the New Living Translation all the time? No. Do I know that it's absolutely right all the time? No. But it did help me in that particular passage to understand this. That's all I'm trying to show you guys, that, that it is not a bad thing to use multiple translations. You still have the question of penalty and power, but I would argue that both... So this, this is where a theologian can help you. So, like, chapter 5 is all about justification. Setting, being set free from the penalty of sin. That's all chapter 5. You know what chapter 6 through 8 are all about? Sanctification. Do you know what's right at the middle of the two of them? Union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So it doesn't... It really doesn't mean one or the other, because both of those are theologically true. And Paul's point is, you are united with Jesus Christ. I'll never forget being in seminary. Dr. Kelly said to me, well, to all of us, union with Christ is the heart of Christianity. It is everything, being united with Jesus Christ. You want to talk about what holds everything together? It's union with Jesus Christ. Um, that is a mystical union, it is a representative union, it is a spiritual union. We don't, I mean, there's all things about the union that we don't get. But, and so, uh, but in this particular passage, one who has died has been set free. I think it's both. And that's why he puts it right at the fulcrum point of before. No, I don't, I don't think. It is. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's, it's, yes, it's, yes, it's righteousified. <laughs> righteousified. Because <laughs> when we think justification, we think just legal, right? But set free is made righteous. Declared righteous, made righteous. You know, it's, it's just, it, the word is just righteousified. So if you're united with Christ, you're righteousified. That means your justification, your sanctification, your glorification, all those together. So yes. So you see how, you know, knowing the Greek can help you, but it's also, you, you don't have to know the Greek if you can look at various translations. It'll help you as well. And if you have a, a literal translation that, that'll help you get the actual Greek word, and then you have these other more looser translations that'll help you think about the theological things, uh, questions, it's all good. I would tell you that a lot of times, a lot of times, um, translators are just trying to not confuse you. So if I were... If I were Cassidy, and I, she were studying the Bible, and I did this with my own kids, I love them using the NIV, because by a large part, they do the work for you, and you just read it. As Cassidy gets into questions of difficult theological things, I would encourage her, as she gets older, to use various translations. It's okay to do that. It's helpful. So have a primary translation that you use, but then don't be afraid of using multiple translations when studying. All right. Have I confused you in all that, or is it, is it helpful? Um, 
And, and well, and that's why you're, that's why a lot of people just use one translation because it's less confusing. But I know, I'll tell you what else one translation can sometimes lead you to. Any other translation is wrong. And it leads to pride sometimes. It leads to, well, if you had the right translation, that's just, you know, wrong. Well, it could be wrong, and you will make judgments. But the Bible is not all simple. The Bible forces you to try to really wrestle with things theologically. And so um, there's a place for confusion. <laughs> so. It's, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So, but all three of those are ways that justification is used in Scripture. And so, okay, we're going to change directions here for the rest of this time. Um, if you don't have this, it's in the back. Maybe Eric or someone could pass it around to anybody that doesn't have it. It would be helpful. It's a paraphrase. Could it, could it be used in times? Yeah, you could use it, but then I would probably, uh, if I were making any theological uh, you know, conclusion, I would want it to be based on uh, much more word-for-word translations. We went through the difference between a word-for-word, thought-for-thought, paraphrase all last week. So um, definitely. Um, Yes, that's right. Uh, so yeah, then you're going to get the theology of one person rather than the, um, the theology of, of uh, a whole group of theologians. Well, but just to kind of, one person's not always bad. I mean, I love to read John Calvin on just about anything, right? His, <laughs> his take on stuff is great. So um, anyway, yes, but you're right. Um, Okay, so now, but we're, now we're not necessarily talking about translations. Uh, we're talking about manuscripts. So in the original autograph, the original autograph is what Paul actually wrote or what John wrote. He, in his, um, you know, he wrote down on some kind of a scroll or something. They actually wrote the text. We do not possess any original autographs of the New Testament or the Old Testament. Has anybody ever had debates with Muslims? This is why Muslims, they love to just say, we possess the originals of the Quran, which is questionable anyway. But, but you know, um, they, they cut us because we don't have the originals. Instead, what we possess... Are copies, and I'll just make it by C's. Okay, we have copies of the originals. 
I believe that the reason why we do not have the original is because we would make an idol of the original. Think about that. We'd fight over it. Who has the originals? <laughs> we, would, uh, we would make an idol of it. And if you think that's crazy, look at what they've done with the Quran. Uh, it is it's true. They've idolized the actual book itself. Neither do we have any perfect copy of the original. We don't have a perfect copy. We might like that too. All manuscripts, this is, these, copy, these copies are called manuscripts. Um, um, how do I want to start answering? That's a great question. Um, let's start with the Old Testament. When Jesus walked the earth... Did he have confidence in the Old Testament scriptures? He absolutely did. So, so what was what Bible did Jesus most often quote from? Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint just. It's 70, there are these scholars, uh, Jewish scholars, I think in Alexandria, Egypt, that came together uh, 100 and some years before Christ, and, and they basically made a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, okay? So this is, this Septuagint is, I don't know exactly, I'll just say 150 B.C. Um, they... Uh, but it is a Greek translation of the original Hebrew. Okay? What, prior to 1940, what was the earliest Hebrew manuscript that we had? No, that that's comes from, that was found in 19... Dead Sea Scrolls, I think. No, no. Benji's correcting me here. Uh, you're talking about the Masoretic text, but hold on, hold off on this. So, the earliest Hebrew manuscript in the up until 1950, this is uh, was from about 1200 A.D. Okay, so if you were living in the Middle Ages and you had a Hebrew um, Bible, it would have been a manuscript, the earliest known manuscript that we would have would have been about 1200. The earliest Greek translation that we would have would be 150 B.C. So where those two disagreed, which one was right? That's the question, okay? For a long time, scholars said that you could not trust the Hebrew manuscripts. And here's why they said that. So if, you, if I were the Hebrew scholar, I had my Hebrew text up here, and you were all sitting around with your pens and paper, and I would say, 
you know, I'd write a word, you know, um, or some kind of, you know, I'm writing the language, and it, we would do it wor- uh, letter by letter. And every one of you would be like a copy machine, right? You'd all have your own. I'd write something, you'd write something. Back and forth. You'd pronounce it, and it was done that way. You know what they did with the original copy when everybody had completed theirs? They burned it. They purposely burned it. Why did they burn it? Because they were so confident that what you guys had was accurate to what this was that they were willing to burn this one. They didn't want old copies of the, of the you know, broken up copies of the scripture. They wanted it to be always the new fresh one. So this is the Hebrew process throughout the history. So you get to 1200 AD and people start saying, yeah, maybe we should keep it. So they, they're keeping the original, that copy at that time. Not until the 1940s or 50s when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls did they find Hebrew manuscripts that dated prior to Christ. So it went back a thousand, maybe more than a thousand years, but we'll just say uh, pre-Christ. Because there was a group of people called the Masoretes. That was a sect, sometimes called the Essenes. And they were kind of this uh, fringe group that went off into the, the mountains and they had their little community. Well, that community dies out. And they had tucked away uh, Hebrew manuscripts into their mountain caves, and they were found in the 1950s. And so for the first time, we could go from uh, the earliest being 1200 all the way down to pre-Christ. And so they could compare the two manuscripts and see how they did. Were they exactly perfect? No, they were not. But they were really close. Okay? So we now use this Masoretic... This Masoretic text, this Hebrew text, in our Old Testament translations. But Christ often used the Septuagint. And the Masoretic text and the Septuagint do have variations between them. Does that make sense? You follow this? But did that bother Jesus? Did he go on a crusade telling people, oh, you don't really have the true Bible. If we could only get back to that original autograph. Here, let me just magically conjure it up for you so you have the the perfect. He doesn't do that. Now, what he does do often is he condemns the oral teaching of the Jews, says things like, you have heard that it was said, but it is written. And he always gives them confidence in the written word of God. Okay? Does Jesus know there's some little discrepancies? Of course he knows. Okay? Have you ever, like, read a quote in the New Testament and then went back in the Old Testament? It doesn't sound quite the same. Well, they're using your Old Testament translations using the Hebrew rather than the Septuagint. And most of those are discrepancies are because of that that, um, difference between those two. Now, get it. This Septuagint is not even a, a... manuscript copy it's a translation and I think that's wonderful too because Jesus is saying you don't have to know Hebrew to know the word of God isn't that wonderful you can know the word of God in your language Jesus proved that to us by using another language than the original autographs okay now that being said 
That's how the Hebrew uh, Old Testament was. The, the, the type of translation copies were very meticulous. They're very well done. When you get to the New Testament, there are some translations that were meticulously done in the, in the classroom setting, but there were plenty of them where just like John gets the letter of Philippians, and he's like, oh, man, Brad, you've got to have this. And so he writes his translation, gives it to him. Or maybe he writes a portion of it and gives it to him. Maybe John is not absolutely meticulous in his details and misses a couple things, right? And you have it. Okay, so just picture, this is where they say there's like 5,000 Greek manuscripts in the New Testament. Portions, and some of them all. And then there are some that are uh, just partial ones. Maybe John's just like, I got the whole letter of John, but I just want you to have John 17. And he gives them that little portion and sends it to you. Okay? Um, So they have all these different manuscript traditions. And... um, what you'll find is, if there is one error, one little distinguishing error in this copy, guess what? All of these copies will possess that same error. Do you see how that works? Because you have to. If, if he made an error and these guys are all using this copy, then all of their copies are going to have that same error. Okay? It's not until you go to another uh, translate or another manuscript tradition that that maybe this one and this one we know they're two different traditions, but these neither of these possess this error, and so you start thinking, ah, this guy made an error. You wouldn't just know this tradition is right; you'd know it by comparing with the other translations. Now, this guy might have made a second error. And these guys have those second errors. And this guy might have made a third error. And so you could compare these two with this one. And that's how they do this. There's a whole study on manuscripts. People that study these manuscripts. Now, it just so happens that one particular tradition has been preserved... through the whole Middle Ages. And if you look on your, your text here, this page, you see this, this big fat line right here. And it says, traditional text. And it says, based upon approximately 96% of more than 4,500 partial and complete Greek manuscripts known today. Okay, this is called... The uh, traditional text, it's sometimes called the received text, um, sometimes called the Byzantine text. Now, you have to know a little bit about your history. The Byzantine text is really helpful. If you know much about the Roman Empire, it was divided into east and west. What happened to the western around Rome, that portion of the empire during the Middle Ages? It was ransacked by who? Those crazy like guys from the north. Well, uh, the Goths, yeah, they come in. And they, they were even looked at as like non-civilized. But they come in and they ransack all of uh, 
Rome and the West. When they do this, they destroy most of what we had in those original Greek manuscripts from the West. Guess what portion of the empire didn't get conquered by them? The Eastern, the Byzantines, uh, Constantinople today. And so they're making all these copies. They don't get destroyed like the other ones do. And so if you're looking at God's preservation, he has preserved these texts, okay? Now, it just so happens that these texts, the earliest manuscript we have from these Byzantine is like 400 uh, A.D., okay? So that's, that's, pretty, that's like four, you know, 350 years from when it was originally written. So the question is, is this accurate or not? What kind of errors do we have? You wouldn't be able to decide uh, a lot of times. Well, what's happened, and you can see this nice little uh, thin, uh, looks like a table stand with just one little thing going up, right? Um, so in, in, it's called Westcott and Hort. And it says the oldest, most complete manuscripts and most reliable argument. So there's this, this thin line. And we have manuscripts that predate 400 AD, a lot of times second century. How do we get these? The same way we got the Dead Sea Scrolls. People going into old monasteries, finding manuscripts, picking them up. These didn't get destroyed. And they all have these dating traditions. Well, we've got actually one of the, does anybody know what the oldest portion of the New Testament is? Like, do you want to go back as far as we can possibly go? What's the, what's the earliest manuscript we have? Part of John 18. The John Rylands fragment or something like that. Uh, my professor at RTS was a scholar in all this manuscript stuff, and he, he actually was able to go into um, uh, whatever Cambridge or wherever it's being held and actually got to hold it. Like, it's, it's, it's encased in glass, so you can read it on both sides. But he actually got to go in there because he was doing his paper on it. And, so, so, and that was, we think that that fragment was written around 118. So that's within, like, 50 years of it originally being written, okay? But our, our trust that what we have is accurate to the original is not because we have the original. It's because we have all of these manuscripts that we are able to compare with one another, okay? All right, so this is the next thing we have to do. Is a manuscript automatically better because it's earlier? Not necessarily. Less like I said, John could have... He, the one that got preserved was that little letter he wrote over to Brad and had several errors in it, but it was the earliest one. It just so happened Brad kept it and we got it. So it's not necessarily the earliest but the early manuscripts were helpful. The 
closer you can get back to the originals, the better off we would be. And we'd be able to um, compare better off with one another. So here's what we have. We're going to get into some actual text and look at. If this is the whole body of uh, the Bible, the New Testament, the, the, the places where there are differences between copies, legitimate differences that are, you know, on pretty much reliable text, those differences are in a small portion of the Bible, and no major theological doctrine of the Christian faith depends on these different areas. It's very important. So um, let's look at it. Open your Bible, New Testament. Look at Romans uh, Look at Romans 5:4 Wait a minute, I'm not that's not right. That's not what I'm looking for. Um, uh, uh, let me find something else. Let's see here. Ginny does, yeah. Um, uh, Robin's going to do okay, so. So I'm just looking at, all I did was open my Bible, and I looked at the bottom of my ESV, and I see these numbers at the bottom. And the fourth note at the bottom says, some manuscripts omit by faith. And I'm trying to find where the reference, it's a number four in the text, and I can't find it up in the the text right now. Usually you go from the text down. But what I want you to see is that this statement, by faith. It's verse three, okay. All right, thank you for finding that. Yeah, there it is. Uh, Through him we have obtained access into this grace. Okay, so this particular uh, difference is that some of the manuscripts say by faith and some omit that. Does, is faith implied in verse 1? <laughs> right, it's explicitly stated, right? So, so are we, if this by faith in verse 2 is omitted, has it absolutely changed the meaning of the text? No. See, that's what I'm trying to get at. Your, your Bibles usually tell you when there's different manuscript uh, differences, but even if you look at them, you're like, eh, okay, that's, who cares? It, you know, it's not changing the meaning of the text itself. Maybe some guy, was he might have looked back at that and said, uh, 
He saw by faith in verse 1, and he immediately put it into verse 2 when he was making the copy by accident. Or maybe he was even trying to be more emphatic, like this is by faith. He's just all excited about this. He's trying to teach his buddy it's by faith. And so he puts that in. But it doesn't change the meaning of the text. That's the point. There are a few passages that are of some length that uh, we struggle with. One is the ending of Mark. So go to the end of Mark. Look at Mark 16, 8. And what are you told at the end of 16, 8? Right, so in the, who has the King James or New King James? Does it even have that statement? Does it, does it tell you some earliest manuscripts do not include? It doesn't even say it. And here, here's why. The King James, this, this tradition, this big tradition, this received text tradition, that has it. As a part of the text. It's only in some of those, these over here, these, these texts that were found later in other places that, are, that they don't have it. And so the argument goes, though, well, the King James has the preserved, so it's the correct one. So we don't even need to tell people that there are other manuscripts because we have the right one. The, the ESV is going to tell you, uh, we're not going to take it out because we can't make the choice whether this is actually original or not. But you need to know that there are some early manuscripts that don't have it. And something that big, there's a lot of possibilities that could have happened. It was the end of the scroll. Maybe it got damaged in, in, in carrying the first original one. You know? And you think, well, why would God allow that to happen? I don't know. <laughs> okay, but, it's, but it is just um, what I would do, and, and Danny and I kind of laugh at each other with, uh, Mark 16. I don't think Mark 16, the ending, has anything. Uh, I'll qualify my statement here. I don't think it has anything crazy that you can't understand correctly with the rest of Scripture. Okay? But I'm not going to take a whole theology on a disputed text, which is what snake handlers do. Snake handlers get the ending of Mark where he talks about handling snakes and that's their whole foundation for their, their, their ministry of handling snakes. Not a good idea, right? I think there's a better way to understand that, that verse anyway. But, but whether or not you, you uh, agree or disagree with the ending of Mark uh, as being original, it tells you, okay? So let's turn over to John chapter and I'm literally t showing you the only major ones uh, that are in Scripture. Oh, good. I'm, gl I'm, glad they, I'm glad they at least admit it. it, does say it down there. Okay, okay. I'm glad they at least admit it. That's good. So look at the end of John 7. And I'm just going to read for you. I'm going to read for you the text skipping the first 11 verses of John 8. 
John 7, 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have a great light, light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. If you didn't have John 8, 1 through 11, it, the text would read as smooth as, because they're dealing with Jesus's uh, being challenged in his authority, and he goes right into this. But John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, you're familiar with this passage where he says that, um, you know, anyone who's not guilty cast the first stone. There is nothing in John chapter 1, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 that cannot be reconstructed, no theological point that cannot be constructed from other passages in the New Testament. Was this original? I'd like to think it was maybe John put it back in. I don't know. But, but uh, again, I'm not going to base my whole theology on, you know, Jesus bows in the sand and draws something, and everybody's like, what did he draw in the sand? Like, that's the big thing. But that, this, is, this is one of the other few places where there's a larger text that is different. There's one more that I want to show you. It's in 1 John, and we have to quit because we're getting late here. Um, 1 John. uh, So it says, um, chapter 5, verse 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree, period. Um, what does the New King James say there? Okay, yeah, they agree. Um, uh, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't add any more to that. It's, it's just, that's it? Okay. Well, this one's not fitting. I'll have to. Th- we'll we'll come back to this one next week, and I'll better uh, exegete it for you. But but there's an addition uh, in this section of scripture at all. But this is it. These these three places are the only three big ones in scripture. And so uh, my contest, my thinking is, why does God allow us to have more manuscripts as time goes on? Uh, if if there were major doctrines that were only in the, the received text that have been found here, I would say, oh, we need to just receive the received text. But there's not. And I think we live in a day and age where the scholarship is so important to our world that I think God's merciful to give us a few more manuscripts that date further back, that we can even be more precise in our, in our looking at the text itself. Um, so I know this is probably... Uh, uh, a little bit strange to you to even think about, uh, but if you can remember in this path, this right here, you'll see that almost all of the new uh, main translations make use of these uh, um, uh, other manuscripts that have been found uh, recently. They, that doesn't mean they don't use the traditional text, but they also make use of these others and they compare them with one another. So, okay. We're going to have to maybe do one more class on this just to finish up and try to talk about uh, 
how they went through, what were the rules that they used in choosing manuscripts, just to maybe make it a little bit more clear to you. Um, and hopefully, in the end of the day, uh, uh, increase your confidence. Uh, right now, it might seem like it's decreasing your confidence because you don't have the manuscripts, the original autographs. But ultimately, I have, as I have looked at how they, the scholarship of this and understood what they're doing, it's bred confidence with me. It's all done in the open. They're not trying to hide things. It's really, uh, it's really pretty cool, uh, the Bibles that we have today. So, Father, thank you so much for this time. And, and even though uh, the teacher struggles to try to communicate these truths, I pray you might help the people in this class to, to uh, learn and understand uh, and better trust the Bible that they do have. Thank you that Jesus uh, was confident in the scriptures of his day, and uh, we just praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.